The battle for soul of this nation has been a constant push and pull for more than 240 years. A tug of war between the American ideal that we're all created equal and the harsh reality that racism has long torn us apart. US President Joe Biden calls for reform after the former police officer Derek Chauvin was found guilty yesterday of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis last year. This year's World Press Freedom Index is published by Reporters Without Borders and will assess how the coronavirus pandemic has sharpened notions of the importance of the independence of the press. And Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Well, wherever he might be, it might not be beneath the famous balcony in Verona that's said to have inspired William Shakespeare's famous scene, if Verona's tourist authorities have their say in the matter. Monocle's editors are here to discuss those stories today on the late edition here on monocle 24 hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on monocle 24 it is wednesday the 21st of april and i'm thomas lewis here in toronto and with us today at midori house in london to cast their expert eyes across some of the day's big news stories around the world are monocle's culture editor chiara rimella and monocle's news editor chris chermak chiara chris great to have you both with us on the program today chiara not to steal your thunder or anything i know that your weekly updates of what you've been been viewing in the week gone by uh, have become a bit of a staple here on the late edition uh, but I for one have been trying to uh, to watch some of the Oscar hopefuls ahead of the ceremony this year which I think takes place on Sunday if I'm right how are the Oscars shaping up from your vantage point there in London which are the films you're most excited about this year well I think I have a soft spot for Minari though I have been told that The Sound of Metal is an extraordinary film as well. And uh, in general, I am not always so keen on watching the Oscar ceremony live. Our colleague Fernando Gustavo is famously determined to see the whole night through and he has pulled some serious all-nighters in the past. Uh, weirdly, this year I feel a little bit more enticed to to do it myself, maybe because we have been discussing so much about the importance of award ceremonies. And yes, I've got to say, you know, obviously, there's no award ceremony that quite matches the excitement of the real thing. There's no, I guess, no award ceremony has really been able to replicate the, the proper excitement of the being there and then. But this one, I feel like it's the one that I might make an exception for. Who knows? Maybe I, I maybe I will make it through. <laughs> we'll see how tired I am on the day. Well, do keep us posted, Kiara. And Chris, how about you? Are you looking forward to this year's Oscars or have other distractions been taking your attention this week in London? Well, admittedly, other distractions, I was admitting, just thinking of that. Speaking of late nights, as you know, we were both uh, watching, as we will be speaking about, uh, Derek Chauvin um, and the trial yesterday, up late, uh, helping to do a little bit of uh, coverage of that last night and watching the verdict come in. So uh, that was that was a key thing for this week. And uh, otherwise, we're actually uh, in production week for uh, the Entrepreneurs magazine. So that's really been the hard focus looking at the interesting different types of places uh, kind of to do business now, now that we're sort of slowly uh, uh, picking up, if you will, uh, from the pandemic 
what what has that changed? Where are people going as a result of of the past year? What are the kind of new and interesting places that are that are becoming trendy? So focusing on that this week, and uh, yeah, otherwise a a heavy news week to to think about, frankly. Well, Chris and Kiara, it's great to have you both with us on the program today. Well, at a little after 4pm local time in Minneapolis yesterday, Judge Peter Cahill read the verdict in the murder trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin for killing George Floyd in May last year. Members of the jury, I'm now going to ask you individually if these are your true and correct verdicts. Please respond yes or no. Juror number two, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number nine, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 19, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 27, are these your true And so those answers continued until the jury had confirmed its unanimously guilty verdicts in all three charges against Chauvin, those of second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. The killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis ignited anti-racism protests in the US and in many cities around the world, on a scale not seen since the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And in this essay, Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller assesses the impact of the unrest that followed George Floyd's murder last spring. On May 25th, 2020, George Floyd, a 46-year-old black resident of Minneapolis, bought cigarettes at a grocery store in the Powderhorn Park neighbourhood of the city. A shop assistant, believing Floyd had passed a counterfeit $20 bill, followed him to his car and asked for the cigarettes back. Floyd refused. Police were called. In the process of arresting Floyd, a white officer, Derek Chauvin, knelt on Floyd's neck for nine and a half minutes, despite Floyd's increasingly desperate pleas for air. Captured in merciless detail on the camera phones of bystanders, it played to many as a brutally accurate depiction of the relationship between black citizens and white police. On Monocle 24's The Foreign Desk shortly afterwards, we spoke to Chuck Ramsey, a black veteran of several American police forces, who rose to become the District of Columbia's Chief of Police and Commissioner of the Philadelphia Police. It started with uh, someone allegedly passing a counterfeit $20 bill. Police respond. He's in the car. They get him out of the car. That's all on video. Handcuff him, sit him down. Then they bring him to the police car, I would imagine, to bring him to the station. He probably stiffens up rather than get right in the car. That is not uncommon. It happens all the time. And you spend a couple minutes talking to a guy. Come on, man. You know, we got to do this, blah, blah, blah. And they get in the car or you call for a patrol wagon, and which is easier to get people into than a uh, sedan or an SUV. Next thing I know, he's on the ground. He's already handcuffed. He's not resisting. You know, they got him on the ground. There, there's an issue of positional asphyxia. I'm sure that the police in, in England know all about that and train as well. If you have to put someone in a prone position face down, you don't leave them there too long because they have a difficulty breathing. And any kind of neck compression in most departments is just out of the question anyway, although unfortunately Minneapolis has not gotten rid of their choking technique. But this isn't even a choking technique, a knee to the neck for that extended period of time. He's not trying to take him into custody, hand in his pocket. I can't explain it. And so I can't explain what was in his mind. 
I think it was appropriate he was charged with murder because that's exactly what it looked like to me. George Floyd was very far from the first black American to die at the hands of American police in dubious circumstances. He has not, wretchedly, been the last. Even as Derek Chauvin stood trial for Floyd's murder, there were protests elsewhere in Minnesota at the fatal shooting of Deontay Wright, a black man, by a white police officer who claimed that she had been reaching for her taser when she mistakenly drew her pistol. The very mildest response is that someone who can't tell the difference has no business carrying either, still less wearing a badge. But George Floyd's death also ignited something that similar recent incidents had not, or not quite. A list that includes, just since 2014, the deaths of Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Walter Scott, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, Stefan Clark and Breonna Taylor. While some of those deaths did prompt protests, none did so on the scale of George Floyd's, which became synonymous with a global movement gathered behind what one might prefer to think was an unarguable proposition, or if you like, a self-evident truth that black lives matter. I'm tired of my black men and my black women being shot, being killed by the NYPD. I'm tired of it. I have three black men in my home. I'm tired. I am tired. This slogan had been circulating since at least 2013, when it seems to have been coined following the acquittal of George Zimmerman, a Florida neighborhood watch coordinator, over his fatal shooting of Trayvon Martin, an unarmed black teenager. But it was the protests sparked by George Floyd's death which lent the cry of Black Lives Matter a thunderous resonance. It was probably partly the times. People all over the world had been cooped up for months by something they couldn't really get angry at, and here was reason to take to the streets. A widespread and entirely understandable perception that the then occupant of the White House was at best indifferent to black America also contributed. And it was also possibly that Floyd's death was just one of those enough-is-enough back-breaking straws when, for whatever reason, or perhaps no real reason at all, one particular injustice and or outrage suddenly seems like one too many. Also on the Foreign Desk, Erin Haynes, editor-at-large for 19th News, explained why George Floyd was a tipping point. But I do think that this is illuminating what I have been calling the pandemic within a pandemic, which really are the dual viruses in America of coronavirus and racism, both of which are on full display at this moment in our country. You know, but the other thing, the, the story is not that this is not new, it's that nothing has changed, right? But it's also that there are many, many more white Americans in this country who are now aware of these issues and who are also voicing their rejection of the status quo and also calling for things to be different. And so from Ferguson to Baltimore to Cleveland, even Minneapolis uh, before when Philando Castile was killed in 2016, you did not see as many white people literally putting their bodies on the line beside black people to protest the killing of so many people who frankly didn't look like them but but who are also Americans and so I think it's really interesting to just kind of see this happening in the coronavirus moment because as a country you know what is the thing that we have been saying during the coronavirus right we're all in this together 
And I think that it was really an open question whether on the question of the pandemic of systemic racism, whether we were all in this together. And I think that, that what feels different is that maybe a lot more of us as Americans do feel like we are all in this together in the fight to combat systemic racism. The millions who marched in the United States weren't alone. Black Lives Matter proved an adaptable rallying cry. In Australia, it applied to the persistent scandal of Aboriginal deaths in police custody. This was Indigenous Affairs journalist Madeleine Heyman-Raber on a follow-up edition of The Foreign Desk. Back in 1991, there was the conclusion of the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. And since that, there has been several recommendations, hundreds of recommendations that have never been implemented by the government. Since then, there's been over 400 deaths in custody of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But I think the thing about the George Floyd case that really resonated most with Aboriginal Australia was the fact that we had a very similar thing happen to a man here. Um, His name was David Dungay Jr. He was being held at Long Bay Prison in Sydney and he was looking forward to being released soon. And he was actually held down, CCTV footage of him being held down by prison guards and gasping for air, saying those exact same words as Mr Floyd, which was, you know, I can't breathe, over and over again. In the United Kingdom, the protests articulated an anguish at Britain's failure to acknowledge the enduring baneful legacies of empire. This was Nezreen Malik, author of We Need New Stories. I think the conversation around statues and history and who we venerate in our public spaces is really important. And I'm a convert to that argument, actually. I was one of those people a few years ago who thought that there were kind of more important things to talk about. But it has huge symbolic significance and it has knock-on effects on how we teach our history and how people who grow up in the UK of different races who come from ex-colonies feel British and feel included. So that part of the conversation, I'm very grateful for happening. In Europe, minorities protested that they were tired of being treated like minorities. This was French journalist and filmmaker Rochaya Diallo. Actually, a couple of days after um, the death of George Floyd, activists, anti-racist activists in France decided to just move the lens from the US to France. Like There was much solidarity towards African-Americans, but as the media coverage was mostly focusing on police brutality in the US, the local French activists decided to say, hey, we do have the same issues here. And there is a young man who died four years ago. His name was Adama Traoré, and we need to protest in his memory to just get justice because there hasn't been any trial for the police officers who were involved in his death. So all the people who were out in the streets, so there was tens of thousands, they decided to demonstrate, to just make a connection between George Floyd and Adama Traoré, who also was a black man. Though the Black Lives Matter protests sparked by George Floyd's death were concerned with structural issues, their most obvious results so far have been cosmetic, which is not to minimise the importance of symbolic change. The US has many fewer statues of Confederate generals than it did this time last year. Mississippi hauled down its state flag, long besmirched by the Stars and Bars Confederate standard. The same emblem was banned from NASCAR races. Around the world, buildings, schools and institutions changed their names to distance themselves from historical associations which seemed suddenly less illustrious. 
None of which fixed everything, of course. In August 2020, there were protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin, after Jacob Blake, a black man, was shot several times in the back at point-blank range by a white officer. We spoke to Kenosha Alderman Anthony Kennedy on the briefing. To me, it doesn't show my police department as I know them, but there's the evidence of what happened, right? So I don't know if it was a long-simmering thing, but... um, I hope that we learn the lesson this time and I hope that we engage in ways that build capacity and allow people to get to a point in this community where we can see policing as a community asset and not a community liability. Much more usefully, the manner of George Floyd's death caused police forces around the US and around the world to take a long, hard look at themselves. Many reforms have been enacted or at least proposed up to and including the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act of 2021, passed by the US House of Representatives, now awaiting the deliberations of the Senate. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Kiara, as we heard in Andrew's essay there, the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis last spring wasn't just a a moment of reckoning for many in the United States, but it was a a story that that in a very tangible way spilled over to many parts of the world. To begin with you, how are the international press, broadly speaking, reacting to to the verdict in Minneapolis yesterday? Well, I have to say that obviously sitting from here where we are in Europe, if you go on the websites of El País and Le Monde and La Repubblica right now, the story is there, but it really is tucked away. Interestingly, I think, for example, on Le Monde, it's not the top news story. It is tucked a little bit further down. But when you go on that little hit list of which are the the most read news stories at the moment... The George Floyd story is the most read on the website. So I think it's, I I guess it has inspired a little bit of a questioning myself, you know, how have the international uh, European press taken it as a US story and and classified on their websites as a US story? You know, even if you look at the the papers, you know, the, the international papers put the story tucked in their world news section. So you have to go back to page 11, page 20 to read the story. So it's considered a foreign story, right? It's a US story. Whilst truly in the the significance that it has had, it's become a global story. I mean, it feels like that for me. And I was really surprised that, you know, the main Italian news story of today isn't this. (laughs) And and I think it, it also perhaps is a bit of a oversight and missed opportunity from the part of many um, media companies on the European continent that perhaps haven't realised that this topic matters to their readership an awful lot more than they perhaps thought it did. I I do think that obviously we will have to wait until tomorrow once people will have had the time to actually digest the information and come up with all the op-eds, which actually I think in this specific case will be the most interesting things to read. Because obviously... The vast majority of coverage so far has been relief at the, you know, at the, at the decision. Interestingly, another thing that I guess I noticed from the international perspective compared to, I guess, the US perspective is that a, a lot of the um, European papers will talk about closing a chapter or coming to a conclusion as if this story was now contained. Whilst I think very much the story in the US is like, 
Okay, let's move on to the next case, which is equally as important. This is the start of a movement. This is not the conclusion of a chapter. You know, the the beginning of the story on the El Pais basically says that the US has closed the chapter in its racial history, which is the original sin of this country. It really feels like the reckoning has happened. And I feel like if you do read the US media, it feels like the reckoning has only just begun. And Chris, the reckoning in President Biden's eyes has certainly only just begun, given what he said from the White House last night. I thought his speech in response to the verdict in Minneapolis uh, was was pretty strong and, and pretty explicit. In it, he said that, as Kiara um, highlighted there, that this was just the beginning, that the US couldn't just now kind of count that this case was closed. How do you think in reality that the idea of reforming the police we've seen today, for example, that the Department of Justice is going to investigate the way the Minneapolis police force uh, conducts its uh, mandate, uh, that many believe will eventually down the line lead to some kind of um, quite significant reforms. But in terms of reforming the way police is undertaken in the United States, how big of a challenge for President Biden, but also for the US more broadly, is this going to be, do you think? Well, in a word, of course, a tremendous uh, challenge um, that we're not going to solve that quickly on this show. But I will say that there uh, there were many interesting points made in Joe Biden's uh, speech, as you mentioned there. You know, just before we came on, Kiara and I were talking about just imagining what this moment would have been like if uh, Donald Trump was giving this speech instead of Joe Biden. I also found myself then imagining what it would have been like if Barack Obama was giving this speech instead of Joe Biden. I can't help but wonder if Joe Biden was more forceful uh, than than Barack Obama might have been um, back in his time, because as you say, he really did focus um, not just on the verdict, but on this work that is still to be done. He talked about this sort of ripping the blinders off of systemic racism um, he also, to your to your point about police reform, it struck me that he, he, you know, he very much focused on that such a verdict is much too rare and that it took, as he called it, a unique and extraordinary convergence of factors uh, for a verdict like this to take place, uh, for, you know, basic accountability basically to take place. And he, he also, uh, in terms of the next steps, um, I thought it was striking that he just said reform uh, shouldn't take this long. It's been almost a year since uh, since the killing of George Floyd. Um, there is a need to reform uh, the criminal justice system. It's been talked about for the past year. There is currently a bill making its way through Congress passed by the House of Representatives called the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, which, among other things, bans chokeholds, which, of course, uh, we, we have all, anyone who has seen the video uh, knows uh, of George Floyd's uh, murder, knows why, why that's in there. But also things like uh, no-knock warrants in the cases of drugs and also uh, reforming qualified immunity, uh, for example, that, that police have when it comes to these kinds of situations to essentially make it easier to pursue claims against police, even in civil court. Now, you can discuss a lot of these measures, uh, and I won't go into you know, we won't go into all of them on this show. But one of the things to say is just this: this was passed already back in March. It's been sitting in the U.S. Senate, and it does 
feel like, at least from when you read some of the political coverage today, um, that one of the impacts of this verdict will be to sort of renew that discussion. It just adds, not only because of Joe Biden's speech, but in general, it kind of adds to that politically important momentum that is needed for this discussion to actually come to some kind of conclusion. And there have been, you know, more talk today, even among Republican senators as well, saying they do need to look at police reform. They need to reach some kind of resolution on this to pass a measure uh, within the Senate. Um, That's something that, you know, could still take some time. There are different uh, imaginations about exactly how this would go, including, for that matter, uh, one of the Republicans' very few African-American senators, Tim Scott, who has unveiled his own police reform legislation. So there is some work to be done here. There's a discussion, but, it, you know, there's just this feeling of, like, it's it's time, uh, t- time for that discussion to move into concrete action. And final thing on that, it it then does, of course, also go more to the local level, as you mentioned, with sort of the Justice Department looking at Minneapolis. I'd I'd advise our listeners, I thought uh, Deborah Archer, a professor at NYU, was very interesting on the briefing today, talking about that, the sort of significance uh, of, of, for example, and I know this has been focused on by many others as well, but the significance of police officers and the Minneapolis chief testifying against Chauvin um, in the case. But, you know, also just in general, what that what that signifies in terms of that this is something that has to be done within police departments as well, uh, you know, within states, within cities. That's still where these discussions need to happen, where there needs to be more police reform from the ground up. Racism clearly is a systemic issue in the U.S., and I found that there was this interesting point in that sense also among Joe Biden talking about that, you know, men and women in police, most of them do serve honorably, um, and this is about holding those who don't to account. And I think the tension between those two questions, if you will, is going to be quite interesting going forward to what extent, you know, there's there's been this question always about whether these are bad apples or not. And a lot of people resist that idea, um, uh, you know, that this is about a few bad apples in a police department. It's about something much bigger than that. But at the same time, it will be important for men and women in the police uh, to actually kind of lead this movement to some degree to change the culture within police departments because at the end of the day, there are also very good men and women police officers who will be have been just as horrified by what happened um, to George Floyd as anyone else. So those are some of the places where this discussion needs to take place. It's a tremendous challenge to go back to my word from the beginning. Well, next year on the late edition, this year's World Press Freedom Index has been published and it doesn't make for particularly cheerful reading as Rebecca Vincent of Reporters Without Borders, which produced the index this year, told us on The Globalist today. It is shocking. It should be shocking, in fact. But unfortunately, it's par for the course. I think year by year, we're seeing just a further global deterioration in press freedom. And this year was no different. Although one thing is that the pandemic has maybe made made it more concretely visible to the global public just how important press freedom is to us in a concrete way. This year, we saw very clearly how misinformation, disinformation and efforts by many regimes around the world to silence independent reporting can impact even our health. 
Rebecca Vincent there of Reporters Without Borders speaking to us on The Globalist a little earlier today. Uh, Kiara, perhaps you can give us a sort of an overview of what this index has found this year. Uh, Hong Kong's press freedom in particular has gained particular focus. What do, what do the findings of this year's index say? Well, I do find it very striking that I guess the headline from this year's report is that the um, journalism is either completely or partly hindered in 73% of the 180 countries that are ranked by the organisation. I mean, that's astonishing. That means that the vast majority of the world is under a situation of constraints um, for its media. And that should really be worrying. I think, as you mentioned, there are certain countries that continue consistently to rank very badly, uh, such as North Korea, such as Eritrea, such as China, um, which is doing very, very badly. It is ranking fourth to last uh, out of 180 countries. And I do think that um, it's interesting, the, I guess, roll-on effect that this positioning of China does have on Hong Kong as well, obviously. I mean, the greatest uh, news in terms of the changes in press freedom in Hong Kong, of course, most people will know, has been the introduction of the national security law. Now, interestingly... The actual ranking of Hong Kong in the uh, in the ranking this year is, has remained the same as last year. It's still at number eighty, but I guess that's because last year there were um, there were all the consequences of the protests. Whilst there have been less protests by you know um, by direct consequence of the pandemic, there have been uh, le- there has been less social unrest in that respect. Also, I've read reports that that one of the reasons why it hasn't changed quite so much is because um the the very recent events uh, including certain sentencing to prison sentences of activists and of journalists um haven't yet been able to be taken into account so this is actually really really fresh things that are coming to the fore but that it's coming <laughs> you know that the effects of the national security law are being felt will be felt and that it is an extension of the power of china and the you know frankly very 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 intense control on the press on on hong kong as well and that perhaps right now it is a transition period for hong kong because obviously as we know it is a place where many journalists operate out of asia and that that will change quite rapidly um and so i do think that unfortunately in that respect we can probably only expect that it's that the ranking of hong kong is only going to get worse once the effects of the national security law do become increasingly felt on the territory and as soon as i guess the the effects of the pandemic will also be felt less and that restrictions on gatherings will also be less strict um that the more the protests pick up again uh, the more also the violence and the repression will also be felt again. And so we will be looking, I think, unfortunately, at a much less rosy picture in the future. One final point I'd just make for a slight bit of positive news right at the end of this discussion is that uh, the report uh, points out that Africa was one of the regions that made among the index's biggest gains. It cited Burundi, Sierra Leone and Mali as all countries that have seen 
uh, actually quite big improvements. We're still not talking uh, uh, levels of, of, you know, the Nordic countries that are fighting for the top four spots every year uh, in this report. Uh, they're still more in the in the sort of uh, upper uh, sort of ni- Mali, for example, is 99th, but that's up uh, nine places from where it was before. Burundi is up 13 places to 147th. Still not particularly positive, but at least there was some positive news in, for example, there the release of four journalists from uh, an independent media um, site in Burundi, and uh, and uh, they also cite the repealing of a law that criminalizes press offenses in Sierra Leone, for example. So, a few little positives. Well, finally here on the late edition, Kiara, Kiara, wherefore art thou, Kiara? Because it's you that's going to lead us through into our final story here on the late edition today and to take us to one of the world's most famous balconies in the city of Verona. I feel very flattered. Wow, that was the most <laughs> romantic thing that's been done for me in ages. No, I I've don't. waited a lifetime um, to say those words to you, to Kiara. <laughs> um, no, the, the story does take us, in fact, to Fair Verona, where we lay our scene. OK, enough Shakespearean references. We can move on now. Um, but this, the, the, the location of what is said to be the balcony of Juliet, of course, not only... Um, you know, obviously, this this is a aristocratic residence um, that is said to have inspired uh, the story of Romeo and Juliet. But the balcony, interestingly, was actually um, added onto the structure in the twentieth century. So it is very unlikely that it would have been actually integral to the inspiration to the story. Nonetheless, it is a very very popular tourist spot in Verona. A um, smallish city in Veneto in the east of Italy. And interestingly, Verona is one of those places in Italy that suffers from over-tourism, particularly just concentrated around this specific site. So you get hordes and hordes of people who go to this place, um, who queue outside, who cram into this space normally, obviously, pre-pandemic. And that very frequently don't actually go to the museum nearby and will just go in, take pictures and leave. And so the long-standing battle from the point of view of the tourism authorities has been to somewhat regulate the access to this space, perhaps even selling tickets to access this place. But this proposal has been blocked. The idea was potentially even to add turnstiles at the entrance of this courtyard. If you've been, you'll know it's quite a narrow entrance and the courtyard itself is quite small. So it would be fairly easy to regulate from the point of view of flow of visitors. It's not a kind of San Mark Square in Venice kind of situation where you can't really quite regulate a public space like that in the same way. But the, I guess the opposition comes from the private business owners that have businesses inside the courtyard who say, you know, you can't regulate flow to our businesses. Also, this is not public space. This is our private space. And therefore, you can't really regulate access to here. Now, this is a controversy that's been going on for a very long while and it is at a stalemate at this point. But I do think that it opens up quite an interesting conversation around, you know, what are we going to do when the issue of over-tourism starts again? Because it will Again, obviously, and you know, without tourists on the ground, cities like Venice and Verona have had time to perhaps think up um, 
proposals. But at this point, are they going to be so desperate to rekindle their tourism industry that it won't feel like the right time to actually do something about it? Or is it now or never? And if you don't actually introduce measures now, then you will be looking at a ballooning of tourism in a way that is completely unregulated. Are there lessons that can be learned from all this? Well, actually, I remember visiting uh, Quebec uh, quite a number of years ago now, and I think that's one of these examples of a place that isn't always particularly friendly to uh, tourists, especially uh, non-French-speaking uh, uh, tourists. And yeah, it's a, for, for a little personal story on that, I just quite remember, uh, I remember going to Quebec and trying to visit this one waterfall, one of the world's longest waterfalls that, that is in Quebec, and having to take this very local bus because it was about the only way to get there. And it was this trek to try and find a way to the waterfall on a bus that took us sort of through neighborhoods and housing estates and, and everything else within within the region. And there were a collection of tourists sitting at the back of the bus, including us, who all missed the stop because the bus driver refused to actually tell us that the stop for the waterfall had arrived. And the next thing we knew, we found ourselves at the very end of the bus line in the depot with the bus driver not at all surprised that he still had about seven people sitting on the back of his bus and eventually just came to admit to us that, you know, yes, the stop was actually, you know, five stops ago and we had to turn around. And it just, it does, those are the kind of examples that do uh, have me wondering, to your point, though, about how are regions like that now looking at tourism? And I think that's going to be the interesting uh, debate that's now being had. Are they going to be more welcoming? Have they, have they realized what they were missing <laughs> um, as a result of this pandemic? Will they be welping, welcoming tourists back, uh, perhaps with more open arms than before? I'd certainly hope so. I'd like to visit again. Quebec was wonderful. <laughs> well, I hope you managed to get lots of holiday snaps of the bus depot of Quebec City, Chris. I've heard wonderful things. Uh, Chris Chermak and Chiara Rumella, thanks very much, as always, to the two of you for being with us on the programme today. That is all I'm afraid to say we have time for for today's edition of The Late Edition. The show is edited in London by Sam Impey. A big thanks to her, as always, too. The Late Edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But in the meantime, do be sure to listen to the brand new episode of The Entrepreneurs, which premiered a little while ago here on Monocle 24. I'm Thomas Lewis in Toronto. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you soon.